You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back, dear listener, all and sundry. I'm your co-host, Michael, joined by Mark Allen. Mark, would you like to say something host-like? Good morning. I am your other co-host, and it is great to be here again, and thank you for the coffee. <laughs> a bit of a tradition, isn't it? How have your last two weeks been? They've been good. I've been busy, still renovating and retrofitting um, a house that I'm living in, and that's been a really interesting exercise. I talk a lot about retrofitting in my work, so it's nice to actually have the opportunity to do it myself and taking it off the gas mains and making it all electric, which is great, but I'm a bit nervous because they say there's going to be electricity power cuts this summer in WA, so it might come back and bite me. So going all electric is really good, but it does leave you a bit vulnerable as society starts to break down. Making personal decisions seems increasingly like a moot point, but we've got to keep trying. Mm, keep trying. There's a solar oven and backup and <laughs> a, a raw food recipe book in case the power grid goes down over summer. So I'm, I'm ready for the apocalypse. I don't know if you are. In the last two weeks, we've also had some developments with Project Asbestos. We had an article published in the Independent Australia. How did you find that experience? Really good. Book. It was fantastic. Good to see it published and good to see it getting some attention. There was a recently a fire in uh, Manjimup, a very large sawmill, pretty much completely covered in asbestos, burnt down, and they're really concerned about that because um, of the contamination. And cleaning that up is going to be a huge job because um, all the soil will be contaminated now. And had the, had the smoke gone in a different direction, they say that everyone in Manjimup would have had to wear masks. So it's another really clear example of the fact that we can't ignore the asbestos legacy and we need to work and create a plan to gradually remove and phase asbestos out of areas, especially where high bushfire risk. And so I'll be contacting Manjimup Council and talking to them about whether or not they might want to put some plan in place about auditing the asbestos in the public buildings and getting private um, homeowners involved as well. We'll see how that goes. The asbestos situation is a good litmus test, good litmus test because it's something that it's an obvious elephant in the room. <laughs> um, and if we can't sort that out, well, then we can't sort out some of the bigger problems like runaway climate change. We knew about the dangers of asbestos for many, many decades before any work was done. And it's very, very frustrating now that we've got this legacy that we're also ignoring it. So, yeah, there are many parallels there. And we see that also with the silicosis issue as well that's happening now. It's as if we haven't learnt anything from the asbestos era. We've got many people working with, with stone and especially the manufactured stone that are used for kitchen uh, bench tops who are getting silicosis and the union are now actually saying, you know, unless the government does something, we're going to do something ourselves. And it's ridiculous that it's got to this stage. 
like a lot of issues, it comes down to a behavioural trait. And this is why with holistic activism, we don't just look at the issue of the, the actual problems that need to be solved, but it's also about changing the underlying behaviour that led us into those problems so that activism is more than just reactive. So that's something that's very dear to me. With the asbestos as a litmus test, we had a meeting with our state MP and uh, I also had a phone call from the CEO of Asbestos Diseases Association. I would like to dedicate this episode to the memory of Hayden Washington, uh, who sadly passed away this week. For those who don't know, Hayden was an instrumental person in the post-growth, degrowth, steady state and even population sustainability movements. He was one of the Australian chapter directors of CASI, the Centre for the Advancement of a Steady State Economy, and he was an absolute intellectual powerhouse. So, speaking of population, I had the opportunity several years ago to work with a very multi-talented individual, Rod Taylor, who may be known around Canberra for his uh, Fuzzy Logic column in the Fairfax papers and also the Fuzzy Logic radio show that he does on one of the Canberra radio stations. Um, I was interviewed for him once representing Sustainable Population Australia. He's also a member of Sustainable Population Australia and he assisted me with the production of two videos. One was called Talking Heads, Choosing to Have Children or Not. And this was a series of Talking Heads interviews with both women and men who either decided to have no children at all or two children, but to stop at two children. So it was a broad spectrum of in individuals, um, all with kind of varying and differing attitudes towards having families, but all united around the concern of having too many children in light of the upcoming ecological crises and existing ecological crises and doing something proactive about that. I think you also helped with a couple of the interviews for the Melbourne interviews, didn't you? How did you find that experience? Yeah, no, it was great. I really enjoyed it. It mm. was a great opportunity to, to meet very interesting people and be inspired. And it's a shame we never got to interview Hayden, but... Yes, know, that will, is very true. Will, he will be sorely missed. And links to much of his work um, in the show notes. Rod also um, helped me in the production of a video when I interviewed the ambassador for Costa Rica. So I wrote an article for Independent Australia. It was about moving beyond GDP and I listed uh, several countries that were, you know, trialling well-being style economies. New Zealand and Costa Rica were two examples. I remember the ambassador, he called me up and my first feeling was I was in trouble. 
because it's like, well, why else would I be called by an ambassador? Uh, but he wanted to meet with me. And so we met in Canberra. Uh, whilst I was doing the um, Talking Heads project, Rod helped me capture an interview with him on film. And I think that is was a really good experience, especially since Costa Rica is such a prime example of a country doing things in more of a right way than other countries. Just for one example, despite being a Catholic-based country, they adopted a proactive community engagement, non-coercive family planning program in the 1960s that has resulted in its own population stabilising in the successive decades. As a result, I think, or at least as a contributing factor, Costa Rica is now at a stage where it is one of the most ecologically diverse countries in the world. Like I, I think compared to most other countries, there's, there's still much of its land area that's set aside for wilderness and the environment. And I'm not sure if that would have been possible had they not had the fa family planning programs in the 1960s. In fact, if you look at some of the neighbouring countries like Belize or Nicaragua, those countries are definitely more an ecological overshoot with a denser population. So I think that's telling. It's very telling. Now, Rod has come a long way since then. He's now an author. He co-edited a book with Steve Williams, who I interviewed in season three, called Sustainability and the New Economics, Synthesising Ecological Economics and Modern Monetary Theory, with contributions from authors such as Ian Lowe, who I also interviewed last season. Rod has released a book earlier this year called 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet, which looks at the human um, experiences and life journeys of several environmentalists and activists who live around the East Coast and Canberra area to which Rod lives, including such recognisable names as um, Michael Kirby and Simon Shake. Yeah. I might leave it with Rod. Hello, Rod. How are you? <laughs> Great to be talking, Michael. We've been through many misadventures together, including many video-making adventures in Canberra. I'm a big supporter of Sustainable Population Australia and the goals of the organisation. And population is something I have thought about for many, many years, even prior to me getting involved with SPA. So happy to be helping and by complete coincidence, SPA also support Post Growth Australia podcasts. So it really is a small world after all. I, I like to get to know the people behind the advocacy. So Rod, other than videos and making videos, what are your passions and what do you like to do when you're not advocating for the environment and for population? 
When I'm not doing environment, uh, I ride a unicycle, I ride a bicycle, I ride a motorcycle. I'm an avid photographer and an occasional videographer. And uh, we're about to go to Central Australia and enjoy the wondrous landscape of this country. I like talking science and I like talking to people. Lots of things interesting. Everything is fascinating. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Being interested by everything. It, it demonstrates the, the multiple talents you have and the multiple interests. What was a light bulb moment for you which made you first aware of environmental awareness? Was it one light bulb moment? So it's a curious question because uh, my father was one of the least environmentally aware people, and I guess he was a product of his generation, a military man and so on. And we were living in Thailand at the time, and he was working with the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization during the Vietnam War. And I was aged, I think, about eight. And I can remember this really clearly. We were driving down somewhere to the coast, and he said, pollution will be a problem when you're my age. And I spent the next two weeks brooding about this. Now, I didn't have the intellectual apparatus at that age to really put it in any rigorous terms. I was looking up clouds and imagining pollution. In primary school, or year six, we call it now, and one of the kids came in with this exercise that they had done, and they said, how long does uh, a bit of rubbish last in the environment? And they said, oh, a piece of paper will last a few weeks, a bit of food, scraps will last a few days and a piece of glass will last for a really long time. Well, that made a really big impression on me. It really got me thinking about the environment. And it also reminds me that you could never tell how you influence another person. That kid, I don't know where they got that idea from their parents, helped them maybe, but that person influenced my thinking. They probably don't even remember that assignment that they did. And then later on, I was in high school and we had the classic conversation you have as a teenager and somebody said, oh, Rod, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, oh, I want to be a scientist. And I said, I think the world is heading into a really difficult time and the world needs scientists. Actually, I might have been thinking I could make more money as a scientist. I was certainly wrong on that score. But it also was my thinking about science, and that's really fundamental to me. I tried to hold myself to a high degree of rigorous thinking, that if I'm wrong, if evidence shows that I'm wrong, I really work hard to go, Rod, you know, you have to accept that you are wrong. But one thing that I am absolutely convinced I am not wrong about and worries me greatly is that the world is headed towards an extremely serious environmental situation driven mostly by growth, not just population, but consumption and pollution are all the spin-offs from that. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go, but that's kind of a really short potted uh, background to what shapes my thinking. And it's amazing where the inspiration comes from. It's almost like a um, butterfly effect. <laughs> you know, this person who did an assignment in class and would never be aware of, of, of the person that they created. I, I could remember many years later being in a work environment which was pretty bad 
and feeling depressed. And I said to my workmates, oh, you know, I don't feel like I've achieved anything. And they said, oh, look, Rod, there's a couple of things you should know. One is that you are about 50% at best responsible for your own success. But also it's all extremely hard to measure your success because I was at a level of seniority then where the practical things I did from day to day were less important than the shaping the organization. And it's very hard to tell what you've, when you've affected somebody else's thinking. But occasionally somebody would say something and I think, oh, I remember saying that. And I think maybe, maybe I have influenced their thinking. You've successfully combined a science and j- journalism with your fuzzy logic Uh, column and your fuzzy logic program on Canberra Community Radio. Uh, I remember being a guest on there once, uh, rattling on about population. Do you want to tell us a little bit, it is a very open-ended question about your fuzzy logic journey. And now the interviewer becomes the interviewee. So, you know, (laughs) what goes around comes around. Well, it is really funny the chance plays a part in our lives. And And I sometimes think, you've got to put yourself in the way of fate. And so I've already mentioned I have a, a passion for science, but I've always loved radio as well. I love the, the conversation and the connection that you have with the people who are speaking on radio. And uh, I started off doing uh, the print handicapped radio. So I was just a volunteer and and I have been until recently doing that. Uh, one, one day I was listening into Fuzzy Logic. I found this program on 2XX in Canberra and I rang them up and I asked them this question and they said, oh, well, you know, we're on air at the moment. Oh. Anyway, I got involved and so I started doing that and I really liked it. And then the science and medical writer in the Canberra Times was Nisa Skelton. And I sent Nisa an email and I thought, oh, we'd be really good to hook up and you could come on our program and we could talk science. And she did. And we became really good friends. And at the end of it, she said, oh, Rod, do you want to write a column? Which kind of gobsmacked me a bit. Now, that wasn't Ask Fuzzy. That was a like a feature article every six weeks or so. And so I wrote those and they really liked them. And then Nisa left Fairfax so that was Canberra Times Fairfax. And she used to run a little Ask the Expert column. And uh, a friend said, oh, you should take it over. So I said, yeah. And that's now in its 13th year. And we do all sorts of quirky things like do you add milk or the tea first? But often we do environmentally important ones. So we've got one that I've written for this coming weekend about dung beetles. Uh, how does climate change affect uh, animals? But it's a conjunction of a few things. One, one is science, but one is I love hearing people's stories, and that's really important to me. The more we get into our current environmental crisis, the more I, I become less interested in anything else that is not related to that. I mean, I have to avoid just being too single-minded, but to me, the, the environmental crisis is so bad that I can barely think about anything else now. This is a common uh, trope on um, this podcast, uh, uh, the existential 
uh, worries for the planet, which are very real. Before we talk about your uh, ever-expanding bibliography, um, just one reflection on your uh, radio days <laughs> is you're the closest a spa member has come to talking to Dr Liz Allen directly. So that unto itself deserves an accolade, Rod. So let's go to the vegetarian meat of this interview and talk about your bibliography um, and combine that with your um, existential angst for the planet and others' journeys on these very difficult times, which is the inspiration and premise for the creation of your book, indeed titled 10 Journeys on a fragile planet. Now, I've, I've been around since you yes, incepted and in writing the book, so um, I, I feel I've got an unfair advantage to the listener here, but fill everyone else in, Rod. Yes, well, I haven't mentioned that my first career, first profession was in IT, and I've been doing that for 30-odd years or so, and I got to the end of 2016, and doing IT is like intellectually challenging, or can be, <laughs> and work with some great people and so on. And but I was feeling increasingly disillusioned and disinterested in the IT stuff, and, and more and more concerned about the environmental situation. And I've been doing media in parallel for quite a long time. So this that story I told you about writing for the Canberra Times and Fuzzy Logic goes back to. Uh, like over 10 years and I can remember I used to sneak off with a workmate and we would sort of share our thoughts and concerns about our lives and I said I'm going to do something really drastic I don't want to be the old man in the nursing home saying I could have this and I could have that now I'm going to be the old man boring the tits off everybody saying I did do this and I did do that now my daughter is a, a prolific novelist and she said write about people and and she was dead right because there's lots of books about renewable energy climate change environment and so on and so on but there are very few books that say what people are doing how do people respond to this situation and what are the inspiring stories as i started to write it it became clear to me that the a key theme of it is what does it mean to have hope? Why why do some people go on regardless and other people just surrender and, and give up? And, and that's that's a really central thing. So the book is very much a, a set of character studies. I, I want to know about what motivates these people. And you, you've been asking me, Michael, questions about my own motivation. For me, that's what gives me hope because we don't have a science crisis. We don't have a technology crisis. We have a people crisis. It's people that can save us from this situation. I don't see any way out of it other than uh, what people do. There are 10 amazing interviews of people who haven't given up, which is uh, good for the uh, rest of us. I'm sure we all feel like, uh, uh, what's the point sometimes? But um, give me one example of one of your favourite interviews that stick out. Yeah, yes. Before I answer that, I, I should just mention that I've I've just finished reading uh, the Ernest Shackleton's account of him and his crew getting out of the Antarctic. And what they went through is absolutely horrendous. I don't know if you've seen this uh, documentary called Touching the Void. 
uh, and I highly recommend it. It's very moving, and it's an account of two mountain climbers in South America, and they were coming down the top of this huge mountain. There's only two of them, but one of them guys horribly broke his leg. Now, I won't go into the details of that story, but the adversity that they overcame in order to make it to the bottom is just breathtaking. And, and to me, that's a parallel to to what I saw with some of the people in the book. Now, one of the standout stories is uh, uh, Olympia Yaga, and she grows maggots, <laughs> which is kind of funny. She's, a, she's an eccentric person, but really exceptional and uh, what she's done is she's created a, a business that feeds food waste that would other go, otherwise go to landfill. And she feeds the food waste to black soldier fly larva, also known as maggots. And they make a very high protein animal feed uh, and possibly even a human feed. But it's taking something that we just throw away and, and makes it into something useful. But Olympia's own journey was really quite remarkable. I had to cut a lot of it down. And at times she had like me taking my breath away because she got pregnant in the last days of high school. And then she wanted to go into agriculture, but it was really difficult because she now had a little boy and she was living out near Goulburn with a kid and she was hanging in the washing on the line and he disappeared. And he had run off and drowned in the creek. Oh, wow. And she found his body floating in the water. It was just awful. So she had all the psychological trauma of dealing with that. And then she she went to Darwin where she was managing a sex shop. And now she's completely unapologetic about it and saying, you know, this is quite normal. And she became almost like a counsellor for people there who wanted to talk about sex uh, problems and so on. She married a Marine and the Marine got shipped off to the Iraqi invasion and, and then that marriage broke down and she married another Marine and he was shipped off to Afghanistan. He got hit, scraped across the skull by a 60 caliber bullet and was traumatized by that and so on. But the thing about Olympia that really stands out is she, she never gave up and she's always trying something new. She's always pushing the boundaries and what she's doing now with the maggot farming is just really inspirational and she and from what i can see she's making a real go of it so uh the book is worth buying he says for a self plug and, and reading if nothing else for olympia's story an incredible story and it does make you wonder the resolve in people you know how many times you get slapped by life and then you just get up and keep going what is it about these people that that has so much fire um and speaking about someone who struggled on live television but has come back up and done bigger and better things is um simon shake he's, he's also one of the interviewers yes yeah, simon is also quite remarkable and uh, i think everybody knows about the activist organization get up uh, but Simon was one of the key people behind Get Up. And when he joined as director, the membership was, I don't know, one or 200,000. And by the time he left, I, I think it was close to a million. And, and he really pushed Get Up 
to be the political force that it is today. Now, it's not a political party, but one of the key things about GetUp is people are so disillusioned and disconnected from politics that, you know, we throw your hands up and say, why why get involved? Why even try? But uh, Simon, his own background was really quite difficult because he lived uh, in a dysfunctional family. His father had heart disease. His mother had mental illness. She tried to set fire to the kitchen. They divorced. His father had a heart attack. And Simon kind of took over responsibility for looking after his parents and for himself to a large degree. We, we talked earlier, Michael, about how one person can inspire or influence another. And Michael, Michael Kirby, former High Court Justice, uh, came to speak. And Michael himself is a former uh, student of Fort Street High. And he so inspired uh, Simon that Simon really, I think it was maybe for him a light bulb moment. He realized that he could do something himself. And, and what he did with Get Up was, I think it's an inspiration for all of us. And then you mentioned, Michael, the uh, hardship that people go through. Well, Simon was uh, live on television on Q&A and fainted. Simon said to me that he's uh, really an introvert character. In fact, a lot of people in public life are actually introvert. He was really traumatised by that and pretty much withdrew from public life and he needed something else to do and he got an immense talent. And his wife, by the way, is Anna Rose, who herself is a really uh, exceptional individual, he realised that if he wanted to influence climate and Australia's addiction to fossil fuels and so on, that he could do it through finance. And so he created a company called Future Super. And a Future Super is an ethical investment superannuation fund. What he said was words something like where when money walks, it talks or, or something like that. So he's disrupting the, the, the finance of coal and fossil fuel mining, for example, by, by sending in, uh, significant amounts of investor dollars into other places where it can do a lot more good. I have an anecdote of when I met Simon at a sustainable living festival, and I think he was a little bit confused with me for two reasons. Firstly, I was asking all these questions of ethical future superannuation companies and um, whether they have property developer portfolios um, such as Stocklands. And we had a very good talk about that. But then he looked down and I was <laughs> wearing a T-shirt for Sustainable Australia Party because I think that was the year where we were all going around in um, T-shirts. So it was uh, two people slightly out of sync trying to find a middle ground there but uh, i think we got there in the end but i think that's just a, a you, you know one of those examples of we're all in the environmental movement but sometimes we're coming from different angles and sometimes we get a little bit confused by each other people often get confused by me yeah that, that's a good story michael because uh, i haven't mentioned i'm also involved with the citizens climate mm. lobby which seeks to directly influence politicians and people in power about uh, the need for climate change, and it's a great it's a great group. But uh, they, they had a speaker on who was talking about urban design, 
and he was saying all the things they can do to re- reduce the carbon footprint of urban design, like make cities more dense, improve public transport, and so on. It, you know, this was pretty obvious to me. And I said, yeah, well, what about population growth? And he went, oh, that's a specious argument. And, and as if like, well, population growth is a given, you know, just just suck it up. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, I'm sorry, but we have to do something about population growth. You know, as well as I do, Michael, because we've both been involved with media for Sustainable Population Australia, the, the, the planet doesn't care if you're Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim or Christian. It's going to affect all of us. And, and so it's not a racist thing to say we care about population growth. It worries me greatly. In fact, in the many SPA stalls at the Sustainable Living Festival, it was often um, the people of Indian and Chinese background that were most responsive to our stall and had the most positive things to say on the issue, as opposed to a lot of uh, well-meaning environmentalists. So it's a, it's a funny old world. But um, until then, people can still buy your book, <laughs> All Those Journeys and More. Um, where can they find the book and how can they buy it? <laughs> that sounded so drawly Dixon, but I promise you <laughs> I came up with it just then. It's published by Odyssey Books. Search online for 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet. And and we're on a, we have a Facebook page as well and a little website. Maybe we can post a link with this podcast. And that's not the only book that people can buy with your name on the front cover. There's also Sustainability and the New Economics, which you co-edited with Stephen Williams, who I've um, broadcast on an earlier episode of this podcast. And what can I say? Again, a small world. Um, so tell us a little bit, an open-ended question, whatever you like about your experiences uh, in co-editing that almost volume of biblical proportions. Uh, yes, it's an amazing, an amazing production. And uh, Stephen Williams deserves primary credit for being the brains behind it. But it's a really serious rethinking about the sustainability question. A lot of our listeners will know about the Green New Deal, maybe the Sustainable Development Goals for the United Nations and so on. And they're great, a really good start, but they all miss the really fundamental thing, which is growth. And even embedded within the Sustainable Development Goals uh, is the assumption that growth is a necessary part of the solution. Well, growth is actually the problem. And so to continue growth is, is absolutely insane. But for this book, we recruited uh, 12, 13 really prominent Australians who's who in their own fields. I mentioned uh, Michael Kirby earlier, just former High Court Justice, and uh, he's a terrific, really humble person who I interviewed later. He talked about how in his chapter, the legal system can be used to uh, for environmental causes. And we've got examples recently, such as in the Bylong Valley in New South Wales, where coal mine, or I think it was coal mine, it might have been coal gas, was blocked by environmental 
legislation. Uh, we have Will Steffen, who I know quite well, and Will talked about the planetary boundaries. Mark Diesendorf, we'll, we'll talk about Mark later because that's another book we have in the works uh, and about the myths of renewable energy. But a, a key part of the book is economics and the popular conception of money, about where money comes from, and this is really central to the predicament we're now in because we are really stuck in this neoliberal, neoclassical economic model, which says you keep going, and it pretty much ignores the environment, treats the environment as an infinite resource and an infinite waste dump. And you might say, well, how can we afford to change anything? Well, this branch of economics, which is controversial in some fields called modern monetary theory is rethinking where money actually comes from and therefore how can you use it and what it says is that money doesn't begin when a government taxes money begins when a government inverted commas creates money that means that the supply of money is not the limiting factor it's always assumed to be so if a country runs in deficit uh, for a long or indefinitely, then it actually doesn't really matter. There are a couple of caveats to that, and it's quite a complicated topic. But one, one of the caveats is that you have to be so-called money sovereign, which means the, uh, the country issues money in its own currency, borrows in its own currency, and so on. I won't go into detail about that. I'm sure Stephen fills you in on that. Steve gave us all a very good crash course in the previous episode. It's it's an incredible, incredible concept. When I read the book from Stephanie Kelton, it was one of those ones where the brain, you, you can feel it exploding because the whole concept of the <laughs> universe is just turned upside down instantaneously. So. Yeah, so that, that book, uh, that book is a very significant thing. And uh, it's unfortunately, it's, it's, it's crazy expensive to buy it, but uh, you can get it through Springer. I think it's going to be very influential because of the circles that uh, of, of people that will read it. And um, I know Steve also advocated lobbying one's public libraries to stock it too. So that's that's another option for people. So I guess this feeds into a next question, which is why can't we grow infinitely in a finite planet? And what about the Green New Deal? Now, this question has particular pathos because we've just had um, an episode from Four Quarters, which is saying to basically power a growing economy using renewals, um, we've got to step up our mining. So, which means all the liberal commies who've been protesting against the big bad miners <laughs> who all listen to ABC are suddenly going to have to find themselves advocating for more mining. So what's going on, Rod? Yeah, that's, that's, a, really, uh, that's a really depressing one. And I should mention that uh, Mark Diesendorf has just written a significant paper on this topic. And now Mark is a, a world-class expert on renewable energy. And he's, his paper says basically that if we return to the rate of growth that we had prior to the COVID pandemic, that a renewable energy simply cannot keep up with, with demand. So we, we're chasing a moving target. And as you mentioned, the Four Corners episode says, well, renewable energy is renewable in the sense that the inputs, the running costs are 
mostly renewable, like sunlight and wind and waves, tide and so on. Yeah, they're infinite resources effectively. But you can't build one of these things without using non-renewable resources. So a single wind turbine needs four tonnes of copper. So that comes out of a hole in the ground. A couple of years ago, we we went on a mine tour of Mount Tom Price in the, uh, West Australia, and uh, it's quite amazing. And we stood looking at this huge hole in the ground. I'm not sure how deep it was, several hundred metres. Well, that hole used to be a mountain. That mountain is now gone, and, and it's pulling iron ore out of the, the hole. There was a book uh, many years ago by E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful, and I tried to read it once, it was a bit hard going, but the, the thing that really stands out for me in that is that um, he said, we treat an asset as if it were an income. So we're spending our assets. So I had to think about that for a bit, but an equivalent is to say, go to your financial advisor and say, uh, my financial strategy is to spend money in my bank account as fast as I can. And he'd go, or she would go, that's crazy. But that's what we're doing. That, that iron ore in the ground is an asset which we're spending at a prodigious rate. We, we've become addicted to growth and we are chain smoking our way to disaster. And, and like an addict, we are desperately seeking the thing that will destroy us. And that thing is growth, whether it's mining or, or harvesting uh, seafood or, or, or mining our soils and so on. It just simply cannot continue. But we, we're kind of stuck in this delusion and the neoliberal philosophy says that, uh, you know, you make everybody rich, you know, the, the tide lifts all water or whatever the saying goes, but actually it's not working at all that um, so-called trickle down is really trickle up. And you look at the number of billionaires on the planet, you know, what Elon Musk is worth two or $300 billion. This simply cannot go on. It's, it's, it's madness. It really is. And, you know, when you talk to other environmentalists, it's incredible. Often when you bring up degrowth, they say, oh, it can't happen. It can't happen. It must all be the new deal. And even when you talk to degrowthists and bring up population, it's just, oh, you can't talk about population. You can't talk about population. But as a former and hopefully returning member of the SPA media team, what is your personal position of the population in the general post-growth mix? It is a really tricky one. And we've already mentioned racism and you know, growth is such a positive word. You know, you say, oh, I'm going to grow my personality. I'm going to grow my abilities. I'm going to grow my community. And yet when you apply growth to something like population, uh, you go, well, I, and I have two wonderful daughters and I now I have a grandson and they bring me great joys. So it's really difficult to say, I, th I think we should have less of them. And we get caught up in this thing about it's the rich people only and not the poor people. Well, if you look at the uh, impact on the planet, population is, is half of the equation. Consumption is the other half. 
So you, you can't just ignore half the equation. And how we do that, of course, is another question. But um, And I, I was looking at something the other day and someone was saying, oh, we want to increase our numbers. And I'm going, well, where does it end? At what point would a future you say, oh, we've, we've, we have too many people on the planet? We'd, now what are you going to do? It's too late. And in fact... I think the estimates are that we're roughly 1.6 times over the carrying capacity of the planet. We're already beyond what the Earth can sustain. And I just want to quickly say something about the word sustainable. It's one of the most abused terms in the environmental vocabulary. Well, we've got sustainable growth, don't we? Uh, you slap the word green or eco in front of your product and say this is eco-friendly or this is green or this or that is sustainable. Well, nine times out of 10, it's actually not sustainable. We, we've got to overcome this kind of collective delusion that uh, we call something sustainable, but it, it isn't really. My last question for you, Rod, was going to be your vision of a post-growth world, but I think this links in well with yet another upcoming book in your expanding bibliography, um, this time with um, co-author or collaborating with Mark uh, Diesendorf. Uh, would you like to expand on how that book links in with your vision? Yes, yes, it very much is, uh, Mark, and and my vision of what a sustainable civilization should look like, and it's it's based largely on the Springer book we talked about earlier, but it's for a, a much broader audience, and, and it brings our own perspective into it a bit more. So there are real there are three pillars of a sustainable future, and one is the environment, of which we talk about a lot. And the environment is a set of services and things that sustain us. Uh, the economy has to be sustainable. Society has to be sustainable. Now you can't have one of those three without the other two. So. One of the mistakes the green movement, the environment movement has made is we say, oh, you can't do this, so you can't do that. But if an environmental solution isn't economically sustainable, then it's not a solution. And if it's not socially sustainable, it's not a solution. And so that kind of flips the usual conversation around. Uh, now, if an economic solution isn't environmentally or socially sustainable. It's also not sustainable. So one of the huge misconceptions, and I don't know, maybe I should call it a lie of neoliberalism and neoclassical economics, is that uh, you can ignore the environment and the, the environment and social impacts don't really matter. So in, in the book, I wrote a short bit about the riots that occurred in Brixton in Great Britain during the Thatcher years. Now, Thatcher was a hardcore neoliberal. She's, she's the one who famously said there is no society. There are only people, individual people and individual families making decisions, which is such a stupid thing to say. It's almost beyond belief because I could say, well, there is no economy. There are only individual consumers and purchasers and uh, businesses making decisions. But the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment and society. 
it is dependent on the other two, not the other way around that the economy is a product of the other two. We really want to rethink what sustainability actually means. And social sustainability is a huge part of it. Now, what that Thatcher story reveals is that people in Brixton rioted because of social inequality and social justice, lack of social justice. And we don't have a future if we ignore social justice. And, and so we're trying to bring all of those three things together. And so that includes some bits of modern monetary theory. I've just been writing about sustainable agriculture. Uh, Mark has written a chapter on renewable energy. We're talking to publishers at the moment and all being well, we'll see it uh, next year. Fantastic. I'll look forward to it. Um, plenty of reading opportunities. Rod, we're going to have to wrap that up and call that a day now, but it's um, thank you so much for having me on at Fuzzy Logic all those many years ago, and it's an honour to uh, return the favour. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Welcome back to PGAP. We just spoke with Rod Taylor, author of 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet. The interview was earlier this year. It's uh, taken a while to get to broadcast. Um, as far as I'm aware, Civilization 2.0, his upcoming book with Mark Diesendorf, with the motto, Civilization's Broken, This is How We Fix It will be uh, published early in 2023. Just one more plug, and talking about the ethical and holistic journeys that come up with this interview, um, this podcast is supported by Sustainable Population Australia, and Sustainable Population Australia have just launched a new discussion paper entitled How Many Australians? The Need for an Earth-Centric Ethics, which was authored by Dr Paul Collins, um, an ex-Catholic priest, prior ABC broadcaster, and a previous guest also on Season 3 of Post-Growth Australia podcasts. It is available online. The link will be in the show notes. Mark, we've touched on a few holistic-esque themes. That's my favourite word. <laughs> Not only with the discussion paper, but the interview with Rod. So I want to leave it open to you to synthesise some of the key conversations in that with your holistic activism movement. I thought that was a very inspiring interview. I love the fact that Rod does join lots of dots together and we need joined up thinking. And what worries me a lot in the movement is there is a lot of fragmented thinking and the lack of willingness to, to join dots and to understand that some people will have passions in certain areas, whether it be population or conservation, or rainforests or renewable energy or town planning. But we have to look at how we can join, join these dots together and look at how it fits into a holistic approach. 
And I love the fact that Rod talks about modern monetary theory as well and where that fits into the picture. But one of the pertinent things that he said is that despite our advances in renewable energy, because of our growth-based economy, we're still always going to be playing catch-up with renewable energy. So it really does bring everything back to the issue that we need systemic change. I talked earlier about what, how we need behavioural change. That's crucial. But we also need systemic change as well as behavioural change. And that systemic change has to be to some form of post-growth society that isn't measured by GDP. And I'm really, really happy to see the way Rod ties all of his work into that narrative. Because that is the thread that needs to connect us all together. Even though we come from different areas and different places in our movements, if we all join together with that thread of we need systemic change, otherwise we're just going to all be putting out spot fires and we're always going to be playing catch up. And this is what frustrates me, I think, with some of the arguments over the population issue. There are people in the population movement who are literally just saying we cannot have endless, endless population growth. At some stage, populations across the board need to be allowed to stabilise and that's okay. And there are so many pro-natalist narratives now in this kind of late stage capitalism that are panicking that countries' populations might start to stabilise and decline. Because even if we have different opinions in population on how big an issue it is, we at least all need to find that common thread in accepting the fact that it's okay to create the circumstances where populations can stabilise and decline over time, that it's okay to factor in empowerment, women's rights, education into our activism. We don't have to play it off against cons uh, per capita consumption. And that it's still an important issue because 50% of pregnancies worldwide continue to be unplanned. So again, it's looking for this common ground. And it's frustrating to see on Twitter that a lot of people who I really respect for various reasons, like people like Vandana Shiva, George Mombio, um, I don't agree with them on all, all the, the issues. Certainly George's approach to population I strongly disagree with and I've made it clear to him that I strongly disagree with him on that. And with Vandana Shiva, she's very inspiring in a lot of areas in um, ensuring that the, the seed heritage in India and traditional farming methods are preserved and big agro companies are not allowed to colonise India, a new wave of colonialism in the 21st century. But yet there is still seems to be disagreements rather than looking for those threads of common ground. Um, for example, George Monbiot is a big proponent of precision fermentation as a alternative to industrial meat production and growing global reliance upon meat. And some people say, well, that's very eco-modernist, and it is. But at the end of the day, we have a population of 8 billion people and we need to take some eco-modernist approaches as long as that isn't instead of returning to and preserving traditional farming methods that understands ecology, that understands biodiversity and regenerative farming methods. Done right, eco-modernism can actually better enable us to revisit traditional forms of agriculture that we're losing due to the demands of a growing population. There's also some, some 
controversy around rewilding. George Monbiot talks about rewilding a lot and he's been called out for saying it's, it ignores traditional custodians of the land, that rewilding will somehow lock land away from indigenous peoples. Now, rather than throwing rewilding out as a concept and saying it's racist, what we need to do is we need to add some nuance to that and say actually rewilding must happen in conjunction with First Nations people and it must be part of reconnecting First Nations people to the land and actually decolonizing conservation. So rewilding is a beautiful opportunity to decolonize conservation. It's just a matter of reframing some of these issues rather than arguing about separate concepts. You know, we create these, these ideas and concepts in the movement and what we need to be doing is looking for how we can add nuance to them and join them together rather than arguing over whether or not something like rewilding is racist or precision fermentation is going to prevent traditional farmers from growing their food. We actually need to look at how they can work together to enhance everything and lift everything up. So for me, that's why I really love joined up thinking and people who really do take that holistic approach. So it's very refreshing to hear that. And I'll just finish on a quick quote by Chris Packham. He said, we do not have the luxury of war anymore in terms of conflict in the, in the conservation movement. We have a very short amount of time to solve a major, major crisis. And the underlying crisis that we're tackling is a systemic one and also understands that we need to change our behaviours as well and not replicate the behaviours that led us into that crisis, then I feel as though we're not going to succeed. So that really needs to be emphasised, I think. Thank you for all that. And my observations have been, especially on social media, you know, people into pre precision fermenting and rewilding, accusing population people of being racist, but then other people accusing the precision fermenters and the rewilders have been racist and then they're in turn accused of something and it just becomes this circular um, trying to catch each other out where it's like okay let's expand on the uh, the good aspects of the ideas and not just necessarily shut out each other with name calling Exactly. It's sad to see George Monbiot being called out as being colonial, but then people have called me out for being colonial and have cited George Monbiot's writings on population as a reason. And so it's like, yeah, it's exactly what you say. Mm. It's like, I'm not being colonial. I'm trying to be the opposite. Well, I don't know about you, Mark, but I'm feeling pretty fatigued this year. Um, it's been a big year. Lots of things happening been in 12 or 13 shows of the Albany production Mamma Mia's keyboard number two certainly didn't help that trajectory but I think we all deserve a good rest listeners and hosts alike and I am looking forward to seeing everyone again early next year me too it's going to be great to be back in 2023 we'll see what the new year brings and I wish everyone a very happy festive season Try not to consume too much, folks. I'm going to try not to consume too much. Not too much, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, see you all next year. Thanks for having me on board.